Chuck and Julie, bringing you the truth straight up. I'm Julie Hagan. I'm working at... An Emmy-winning former investigative reporter, a highly successful trial attorney, and publisher of a major Denver-area newspaper. They've been partners as talk show hosts and in marriage as parents for over 10 years, providing thought-provoking information, opinion, and entertainment live, local, and interactive. Everyone's voice is always welcome on The Chuck and Julie Show. Well, hello, everyone. Chuck Bonner, Julie Hayden, the truth straight up, brought to you by. Brought to you by AmericaCitizenPress.com uh, and Denver Senogenics and Dr. Julie McCallan. Chuck has now lost, gee, almost 15 pounds. It's great, thanks to a diet help with Dr. Julie McCallan. So a lot of talk about today. Chuck wants to give his update um, in a little bit on the Amber Heard case. He's still obsessed. Obsession continues. Um, It'll continue for weeks because it's not going to be over. They're going to take a little break and then more action. So well, lots Chuck, of Keep action. your head in the screen. Keep your head. And, oh, and, no. and and we got the Supreme Court, obviously, Ash Epp coming up on exposing and expelling rhinos. But wanted to start off today, as promised, with John St. Augustine. He's a former El Paso County Sheriff's Commander and Investigator. And to cut to the chase right away, he worked with Lou Smith on the John Benet Ramsey case. John Lou Smith was hired by the Ramsey family to look into it. And as we told you Monday, Jared Polis has agreed, and, and I suspect it's a done deal. Otherwise, he wouldn't have issued the statement he did. To um, has been asked by John Ramsey to hire an independent agency or appoint an independent agency to review, to do some new DNA testing. And um, this was revealed in Las Vegas, I think in a very public way, they've got thousands of signatures on a petition. And again, I think that Polis wouldn't have agreed to review it if he didn't intend to do it. So let's bring in John St. Augustine, who is, and John, I wanted to ask you, because you have been kind of working on this all along. And I know um, you guys have had meetings with the Boulder police and and who apparently keep saying they're going to do something and never do. Right. Which is kind of what led to John Ramsey's recent request. Is that right? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. But first off, I just want to tell you and Chuck, thank you for having me on. I oh, really of course. It. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you for your time. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, this, you know, this whole thing with the DNA, you know, I have to be honest with you guys. This has been going on for some time, uh, Chuck and Julie, you know, the, the family has made multiple requests over the last, you know, 20 plus years. I mean, we're talking, this is year 26, this December, yeah. 26 years. And, you know, it's, it's uh, no surprise that the case continues to be where it's at because to be honest with you, nothing is being done. Um, right. You know, the narrative has been from the very beginning that the family, you know, was involved in the murder of their, you know, their daughter, either their brother did it or mom or dad did it. And, you know, the, I think the biggest problem that we have as investigators is to have that tunnel vision, right? I mean, remember, right, the role of the role of an investigator is nothing more than to gather the gather facts. And this request that's been made recently regarding the DNA is really something that should have been done years ago, right? And, and as I shared with you, Julie, um, you know, there's there's things that have gone on over the years that it's just mind blowing. Like why weren't these items tested, you know? And, and so we have to ask ourselves, you know, what point do we say, look, enough is enough. Let's go back. Let's go through these facts. Let's, let's actually go back and do some real testing and find out who was involved in this murder. Well, and to show folks, to let folks know how important this is. um, And, and this is, I think this holds true, no matter whether you're in a Ramsey's did it or an intruder did it camp. So talk to me a little bit about there was DNA testing done and the, the DNA has improved over the years, but DNA testing was done on three key things. I'd like you to talk about the underwear that John Bonet was ram wearing the um, long johns that she was sort of wearing as pajama bottoms over the underwear and then under her fingernails. And they got DNA. And can you tell us what did that DNA, what did that DNA sample, the test come back as? So to kind of let's rewind a little bit, okay. right? Back to 19, back basically back to 1996, 97. So December 26, this is when John Bonet, nine-year-old John, six-year-old John Bonet, excuse me, is found um, in her home there in Boulder, 755 15th Street. They find her body. Um, they do the the autopsy, they get their their DNA, you know, um, there are different pieces of evidence to analyze for DNA. So this is actually forwarded to the Colorado Bureau of Investigation for analysis. So in January, there was actually a report that comes back that they were able to find a, a, a find DNA okay. on her underwear at the time 
and under her fingernails. Now, when you mentioned the long johns, that actually didn't come about until about 2008. Right. right. Now, what, what they've been able to find as a result of those three pieces that you were referencing is that all three of those, uh, all three of those evidence items, the DNA found on that came from the same source, meaning that it came from the same individual. Let me clarify on that because I want to be certain on that because it's my understanding with DNA testing that um, it can be anything, depending on the quality of the sample, can be everything from specific enough to say to distinguish between me and my daughter Mm -hmm. or vague enough to be a Caucasian female. So how specific was is when you say it came from the same source, how specific is that? So it was it was my understanding on the testing that the sample on her underwear um, that there wasn't enough um, loci, there wasn't enough sampling to generate a good profile from that. But they were able to generate a good profile from under her fingernails. And then later, Bodhi Technology, who's a, a pretty well-known um, laboratory here in, in the U.S., was able to take her long johns and develop a good profile. So what happens is once this profile is developed, what law enforcement has as part of their tool set is is uh, a, a, D, a DNA, excuse me, a DNA database. Right. It's much like what you hear about with fingerprints with right. aphids, right? It's it's CODIS, which is the combined DNA index system. Then what happens is it's the responsibility of that law enforcement agency, if they have an unknown sample, to then see if there is a known sample from CODIS that it can match up with. Okay. And, and what so- we know right now is that you know none of there has been no match to anything in CODIS, but we have to use some caution here when we're talking about this, because remember this happened almost 26 years ago. Right. So CODIS was not, had not been developed really. I mean, it was in its very, it was in its. Which is why the genealogy testing, but let me though, just to clarify, and then, you know, Chuck has some questions too, but just to clarify. So, but the profile they developed, you said it's specific enough that they can tell it came and, and it was not the Ramseys that basically it excludes them as I understand it, that is correct. but it came from the same source. And so here's why I think what people need to understand why this further testing is so important because the police narrative has been that this, these were just sort of random contaminations, right? It could have come from somebody at the factory or contaminated by the fingernail clipping clippers that they use to get with the fingernails, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I, I got to agree with you. That seems kind of hard to imagine, but it seems to me that if you found a similar match of that DNA on other pieces of evidence, well, that would be, so what are, and I was stunned when we talked earlier, when you told me some of the stuff that they have not tested, because both the police make it sound like, well, we've tested DNA all over the place for years. What are the pieces of DNA that you consider particularly significant that haven't been tested for DNA yet? Yeah, you know, and, and as you mentioned, we talked earlier about this. And one of the reports that I had brought up to you was actually, the, the laboratory report from Bodhi Technology from back in 2008. And I can tell you just looking at the report that, you know, there was the ligature from her neck, the broken paintbrush handle, a ligature from her wrist, and um, a pair of what they called Wednesday panties that had never been tested. In fact, in the report, it actually says on page two or four that samples one, two, three, and four, which is what those samples were that I was telling you about, were not processed at this time, but they give no explanation as to why it wasn't why not? processed, right? right. And, and well, something that close to her, right? From an investigative standpoint, I would want to know, you know, what, the, what if anything, came from that? You know, it's no different than right. you know, to, kind of, to kind of put it in another forensic standpoint. Like if we look at something like ballistics, or let's just say we look at something like fingerprints. If you have 20 shell casings at a shooting, do you only test one or two of them? Or should you test all 18 of them? Well, particularly when you, you don't, don't have any idea who forced- did it. That's right. right. Especially when you don't know who did it. And also, you know, if, you, if it's something maybe gang related, you don't know if there's multiple shooters. You don't, if you have a murder in a home and you have multiple fun- footwear impressions or fingerprints, like who else could have been in that home that could potentially have been a co-defendant, right? right. Maybe not carried out the murder or maybe did carry out the murder. The bottom line is, as an investigator, it's our responsibility to get those facts. And why... That hasn't been done, Julie. And Chuck, I don't know. It doesn't make any sense to me. And like you said, whether you believe the Ramsey did it or you believe that an intruder did it, regardless, you still want to get this stuff tested. Right. 
Right. Okay. Do you have anything? Yeah. I mean, I guess I know why it wasn't tested. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Please tell me, Chuck, because I, I really would like to know. Okay. <laughs> 26 you know, years later. You, you may idealistics say investigators just simply supposed to look at all the facts and, and you know, uh, look at things that are against his conclusions and for his conclusions, but that's not the way human beings work. And it's no different for attorneys. You get a case and you find all these things that help your case. You tend to discard the things that don't help your case. That's and right. usually you have to get somebody to come in and say, there's a big flaw here. You better address it. That's right. Um, and particularly if, if opening it up is going to uh, potentially hurt the conclusion you've come to, which is that it's a family and supports its intruder. That's the last evidence you want. It's it's on the bottom of your 30-year pile, um, never to come up to the top. And that's just the way human beings work. So I think your your motion to the governor is a good one. I mean, saying, look, you know, just give it to an independent lab. Their family's willing to pay for it, so it doesn't cost anything. Uh, he doesn't really have a dog in the in the in the it's fight less, right but publicity we, well, we talked about that publicity, the other day yeah, well, but, then, well, <laughs> and so i think all of that leads to why they won't do it or it's not important to them they have other ones they consider more important um but it's it's going to be um if, if it does show a consistent pattern it's going to be hell for them uh saying well haven't you done anything for 26 yeah. years right yeah um, but you know chuck i mean you be you know you being an attorney Right. You know, right. I mean, this is in law school 101. They tell you that as prosecutors, your role is what? Your role is to seek justice. Well, and I can so, tell you the one thing, the one know? thing prosecutors are not doing and never done, as you well know now. Oh, yes, sir. Yes, you sir. now well know that they don't care about doing justice. They they care about getting convictions. Yes. And you've got to be in the middle of that where they prosecutors yes. treated you like garbage. So Yeah, nothing worse matter. than being charged with kidnapping somebody you never met. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Tell me if I'm wrong here, but aren't that some of the two two of the guys who are now commanders of the Boulder Police Department were among some of the original investigators, right? So it's not like this is this whole completely new group of people there. Am that I right there? Correct. Yeah, and see, that's the problem when you're dealing with an investigation like this is that you really need somebody who has not lost their objectivity. You know, when you have leadership, you know, Trujillo and Gossage, who are, you know, I think Trujillo is a commander of investigations and Gossage is a deputy chief. I mean, you got to remember, right? I mean, what those those individuals have believed from the very beginning that the family had something to do with it. And, you know, from, you know, I got to be careful too to maintain my objectivity and, and knowing, you know, that I've done, I've been on this case for 26 years, but, you know, what I would tell you is, you know, the worst thing you can do in the law enforcement side of this is to not go out and gather the facts. And to right. me, this request is is something that is very simple. You know, the results are the results. If like well, you said, the DNA comes back and it ends up tying up with one of the family members and it's unexplainable, then, you know, the family has an issue. If it ends up linking to somebody else and it, and it happens to link up with the items that we have talked about, right? right. The, 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 the underwear, right. the fingernails and her long johns, then I would tell you that's something that is pretty powerful evidence. Oh, it is. I mean, because as you said, it's hard to explain. And again, the and I'll confess, I got to confess here. I've long been in sort of more of the Ramsey's did it, although this new DNA thing was making me, I guess, forcing me to be more open minded. But then I also had to stop and think, John, after talking to you, all of my information and all of everyone's information for a long time. And this has largely come from police sources. And 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 so their explanation of it and and again, their explanation of this DNA and the underwear long johns and under the fingernails is that somehow it was contaminated or reared random contaminations. OK, maybe. But let's go ahead and do. But if that, but if you find the same DNA on the paintbrush that was used as a garage and to sexually assault her, if the same DNA is found on the, the you know, the, the rope that was used to garage her and on the around her wrist. Well, that becomes a little bit more. You know, that becomes as, as you said, pretty powerful evidence. And what are some of the other things that youth guys think should be tested? And then we'll get into the genealogy stuff that should be tested that hasn't been tested. Well, I can tell you there were over a thousand items that were collected during the course of the investigation. And what I can tell you is probably less than 10 to 20 percent of that has probably been been actually tested. You know, the the thing is, is I think this investigation from the very beginning, if it fit the Ramsey family, 
then I think they were more willing to test something that maybe was linked to the family. Like Chuck was saying, yeah, something that maybe was exclusion. It had some kind of exclusionary, right? It was exculpatory evidence. I don't think that they were as, as willing, right. right. To, to test that evidence. And because to me, it, they, had, they had nothing to do with do it. Right. Yeah. Right. You just, right. you just cannot do that. And, you know, that's, I think why we're looking at a case that is, you know, 25 years old unsolved is because we have not opened our eyes to what the possibilities are today with technology. I mean, you can look, right. you know, we talked about this, Julie, Right. You know, you can look in California with the, you know, the, 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 the deputy who was involved in the Golden State killings. Right. Right. And, and here we are about we're talking about a guy who was in law enforcement. I can assure you that nobody in the very beginning probably thought that somebody in law enforcement was was responsible for those murders. But now fast forward to 2019, 2020. Right now, all of a sudden, they have a lot of new technologies. And the biggest thing there is that law enforcement was willing to, to explore, do it. right? Right. Was willing to explore it, and and look what happened. They were right. able to to get a hit. They were able to to corroborate that you know this evidence is in fact coming from this individual. They were able to conduct an investigation without him, you know, this individual knowing D'Angelo, knowing right. that where he was, where these murders happened. They were able to put together an established timeline to show that he was in these locations. And and really, that's what needs to happen is that. We've got to bring some objective people into this investigation, much like, you know, what we've talked about with Clements. There's right. got to be, an, 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 you know, kind of this, look, let's wipe the slate clean. I'm not going to let anything influence my decision making except the facts. Right. And, and bring that in. And bring that right. in. Well, let, let me ask you this. It's the part I have that, uh, you know, I haven't studied it and done everything else like Julie. But uh, when I was younger, I took graphology classes, which is a study of handwriting. Mm -hmm. Um, and ostensibly whoever did the deed wrote a draft ransom note and then an actual ransom note that was ran a page or or longer. Uh Uh, And I've looked at her handwriting and to me, it seems to be a match. Well, Um, and and then let me explain that Chuck, because I don't know if you know all the specifics with that. So the person who did the analysis of the handwriting involving all the parties, meaning John Ramsey and Patsy Ramsey, mm-hmm. uh, were, were well-renowned experts. People like um, Howard Ryle, Leonard Specken. These are guys that work for the Secret Service and the federal government. And I will tell you, both of those individuals said that the handwriting did not match anybody in the family. Damn. Then you look to Chet Yubowski who was the CBI examiner. And I will tell you, Chet Yubowski. So when you're looking at handwriting, right, you look at whether there's it's improbable, probable, or highly probable. That's right. kind of the three phases yeah. of what they have or, or the three distinctions. Right. And what they said in, in this writing of the ransom note in comparison to Patsy's writings was that Chet Yubowski said there's a probability, but not that it was highly probable. In fact, he says, but it falls short of us saying that she definitively wrote the note. So you have all of these experts who either say improbable or maybe probable, right? But not highly probable. And we're also talking about a science, as you probably well know, um, this is no different than polygraphy, right? It's not something that really yeah. rises to it's the level. It's not like DNA. It's not like DNA. It's not like ballistics. It's not like fingerprints, right? It's not like computer forensics. It's not like Mark testifying, Mark Poff testifying right. about call detail records, Right. right? It's not well, like any of that. I, I can tell you, if you have what, what is several pages of handwriting, mm-hmm. and handwriting is very hard to disguise um, over a long period of time. I mean, right. it is very hard to disguise. It is. And especially if you're writing page after page uh, of it. Right. And it should be that one of the two is true. One of the two should be able to be determined without... Well, a, well you don't know anything about No, graphology. I don't, but I do know, though, from... But, an... Well, let me finish. Okay. Um, that's you know you can get a graphologist to say anything you want i mean you just just like you can get any expert to say what you want but i'd love for that evidence to be taken out to independent non-confirming sources to either say no this is not you know patsy whose handwriting it does look like uh, definitely not john's and not the other ones and I'd love to see that taken out because I can hire an expert tomorrow who will say it definitely is. And I can hire an expert tomorrow who says it definitely isn't. That's correct. Um, and, and that your guys work for the Secret Service for the federal government these days is an indication <laughs> that they suck. 
Right. <laughs> criminals. And Stephen is saying, let Chuck finish. <laughs> well, and this goes uh, back but, to... But I hope, I hope maybe if this comes back and it shows there's an intruder that they, they take it out to, to two or three who have nothing, you don't tell them, well, you know, who's paying the bill, uh, <laughs> but have them... Uh, Sure. Uh, analyze it. Well, and I go sure. back to, again, and I want to talk about a little bit of genealogy again with the DNA testing, because so for folks, if you haven't, the, the DNA technology has changed significantly from 1996 to today. And, and as you pointed out, John, one of the things the Boulder police would say is, well, we ran it through the database and we didn't get any matches. But like you pointed out, they weren't doing that much DNA gathering back in 1996. And so there's this whole new or uh, I guess area where law enforcement has been using, and that's all these, gene, you know, 23andMe, the genealogy tests that are going out there. And right. it seems to me that, but the Boulder police haven't done that either, right? They haven't run this DNA sample or in any way tried to compare it. They keep saying, oh, that's a great idea, right? But they don't do it compared but, to these other genealogy uh, databases. You know, and, and again, they, they, they may have said that they've done this. The, the problem is, is that I, I guess what my issue is when it comes to DNA is why would there be any resistance? To me, the response from the Boulder, you know, the Boulder Police Department should have been this. Look, we're always looking, you know, in this case, we've we've kept it active. We're always, you know, we're always encouraging the public to get involved in in any leads that may link to the killer or killers in this case. But there's nothing really for us to lose in testing the DNA. And, and oh, by the way, here's what we have done of the thousand items, right? right? Here are here's the items that have been tested. They don't necessarily have to tell us what the results are, but at least show that, hey, we submitted, you know, th- this number of items to the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, to Bodhi Technology, to, you know, Genentech, whatever the laboratory is, at least right. say, look, we've done it. We've sent these items off. Right. And that way, you know, they can at least show the, the public that they're being proactive, that they are trying to find out ways to, to get to the bottom of this case. You know, is this only a DNA case? I think we have to be very careful not to pull all of our eggs in the DNA basket. You know, we got to look at other things that were going on in that crime scene, like a stun gun, like a taser, you know, like the garage, like the evidence inside of the, the suitcase, right? Like Chuck said, the handwriting, there's a lot of different forensic disciplines that have gotten so much better over the years that nobody's, you know, nobody on that side of the camp on, on the law enforcement side has really sought out to really get to the bottom of this. There's well, a reason why this case is unsolved. And it's right. even indicates, and I certainly believe it to be true. Every time you test a sample, you have to destroy part of the sample. Yes, potentially. So a lot of it can be consumptive. And, and, and I understand that. But the thing is, is, you know, you can't tell me that all thousands of these items, if they've never been set, tested, it's not consumptive. And, and there's well, tech- develop- making it to where it's not consumptive. You know, in the old days, Chuck, I will tell you, when I worked the Ashley Gray murder in, in downtown Denver, I don't know if you guys right. remember, you might have. I, I covered that. that. Yeah. yeah. So you remember, right? Um, right. Mr. Morris, Ken, the, the father. Right, was involved in the in that the father's friend was involved. The father's in the murder, friend was the guy. Right? Who, yeah. Morris was, the, <laughs> I believe, the guy's last name. I worked that case, and I remember wow. when they did that DNA. If you remember, she had a, a, a two pairs of shoes. One was her older sister's shoe. There was uh, her underwear. There was a shirt that she was wearing, and they had to cut out samples of where they had blood that they matched up with the suspect. That when Chuck's talking about that, those particular tests are consumptive. But you know, when you're swabbing things now there's ways to still maintain the integrity of that evidence. And, and, and really that's what it's about right now. We're not talking about, you know, saliva. We're not talking about blood. We're not talking about seminal fluid. We're talking about items where people grabbed it potentially. And by doing that, they've left behind exactly these epithelial cells that they've left behind. And what we have found is like, like the more force that you apply towards an object, the more of these skin cells you leave behind. So we may get lucky, right? Well, and here's the thing. And here's where I come down, though, too, John. It's like it's been 26 years, yeah, right? right? So it's, it's, it's not, not like they've just been waiting. It's not right. like right. They're, they're, they think that there's going to be some suspect come along and they're just waiting to do that. And I think in this case in particular, the DNA would be huge because it was such a cluster that to, to try to prosecute this case would be a nightmare under any circumstance. But I think if you have DNA and I and like I say, it's like do it. And then and then you can turn around and say, you know what? There was no DNA. There was no DNA. 
DNA on the ligature. There was no DNA on the suitcase handle. There was no DNA. And then, you know, and then you move on to me. I do think, and, and it's not even like they can argue about time because you could just submit this to a private lab and say, you know, it's a cold case. It's not like we're, you know, and, and it has to be next week and you have to drop everything else. I, I guess I just come down on somebody who's covered this forever. I was stunned when you started going through all the things that hadn't been tested. It's like, why on earth not? You right. know, and well, again, because there's well a famous, I know why there's not. There's a famous but... case in Kansas um, where they're demanding for five, six years to, that, that they test, test the DNA because when the DNA came up, um, the uh, testing techniques weren't good enough to do it. And the DA fought it, fought it, fought it. And then when finally when the judge said, well, you know, you sure? And he said, okay, yeah, test it. I don't care. And the, and the DA, DNA came up uh, so that the uh, person convicted was not the person and identified another person. The prosecutor still refused <laughs> to vacate the verdict. Yeah, he was right. so yeah. sure right. he didn't uh-huh. care <laughs> that you know, the real murder had been caught. And, and, you know, Chuck, to go back to what you were stating earlier, it's, it's to get those convictions, you know, to get that notch on their belt. Yeah, and right. it shouldn't be about that. It should be about... What is justice with the well, truth? And, like, well, the but you're dealing, with, being, is, you're is dealing with human beings. And, and John, let me ask you this. Jacob has a point. He says, um, that's why... Um, Oh, wait, it's like Leo, Leo, Stephen says, Leo, I think the Boulder police did such a poor job of securing the crime scene and collecting evidence that there's limited evidence to test. Let me ask that sort of taking a spin off of it. Is it possible that that's something else they don't want to acknowledge is that they have totally screwed up securing the evidence in this case and they don't want to have to say, oh, ligature. Yeah, (laughs) it's here somewhere, you know, oh, well, it's in this like paper bag with with our lunch or something. I mean, is that possible too? Do you think that they're trying to cover potentially well, something up there? I, I think there's no denying that they messed up the crime scene. I mean, you know, if, if you just look back to when when the initial call came in, I, Julie, you and I talked about this, right? You know, there were there were three polite police officers on scene when that nine one one call was made. What a lot of people don't realize is that they actually went into the home and they searched this sixty seven hundred square feet tutor in Boulder, right? Not once, but twice, and by by just chance, right? By just chance, which I don't understand, they didn't open the door where John Bonet Ramsey's body was behind. The other thing that was a huge mistake in this case that a lot of people don't understand is that when Linda Arndt, who was the detective on scene, at around 10 o'clock, if you remember in the ransom note, it said something about, we will call you between 8 and 10 a.m., right, right, tomorrow, about instructions on what to do with this $118,000. Well, what happens is that she actually tells John Ramsey to go look for things out of the ordinary. That, that would never happen in any other agency. In, yeah, all the stars have to be aligned the right way for me to tell somebody who potentially could be a suspect to go look for things out of the ordinary. Well, the thing you need to do is secure that crime scene, get everybody out of it so right. that you can preserve whatever evidence is on well, that. Well, that would be, in my experience and covering a ton of these crimes that, I mean, because the Ramsey's called their minister. I mean, they had friends over. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was sure. like a ton of people wandering around That's that house. Right. Normally they get all of those people out. They separate them. They stick yep. them. They take them down to the police department and talk to them. If they yep. think there's going to be a ransom call, then maybe they do, they work, they, they handle that differently, but you could forward the phones or, or whatever. But yeah, I, I agree with you. The fact that everybody's wandering around and, and, you know, and nobody's separated, nobody's sequestered, nobody's even being questioned at this point as insanity. Well, can they tell from the DNA they have whether the, the DNA matches up with a male or a male? With yes, they, they, they have been able to determine that it does match match a male. OK, um, I will tell you that um, of the items that they have tested, right. it comes back to a male. Okay. Um, but, you know, I, you know, again, you know, law enforcement's not obligated to give us any of these results. Right. Right. But but I will tell you, they're not helping themselves out by, you know, making this uh, a fight to go out and and, and gather facts. The best thing they could do is just go out, test this, test all these items, figure out if there's any DNA profiles developed from these evidence items. And if there is, who does it match up with? Who does it not match up with? And that's going to kind of tell you a pretty, you know, at least a story of 
who you can include and exclude. Well, and here's the thing, and I know we got to let you go here, but, and, and also finally, to me, it would seem like if it, cause they've released information sort of piecemeal all along anyway, I don't see at this point, unless they all of a sudden be like, oh my God, it's like Bill who lives right at this address and all the DNA matches him. I could see then you might want to keep it quiet, right? Sure. But, but sure. if you, if you don't have a match and if you don't know, I mean, it just seems to me, it doesn't hurt to come well, back depending they, on what they find out. Yeah. Here's the thing. They, they've believed from day one that it's the Ramsey family. Right. So you go get all these items tested and it reveals that it's the Ramsey family. Imagine if that was the case, that they, they, they would be out doing it right away. Yeah. And so my thing is just get it tested, figure yeah. out whose DNA, if there's a profile, the, the technology has evolved to a point now where we can really just literally from touch DNA can get a, a profile. So let's go develop a profile from all of these items and, and look at the case objectively. You know, whether you're on the intruder camp or whether you're on the Ramsey camp, my thing is from an investigative standpoint, from a cop perspective, you should not worry about whether it's an intruder or not. You should worry about gathering the facts and let the facts tell you who did it. All right. Well, listen, I think we'll stay in touch because um, I get a feeling Polis is going to act on this sooner rather than later um, once the abortion stuff dies down. And um, so we'll see what happens. John, thank you so much for Thanks, your time. John. I Great totally sure appreciate Good it. Good seeing you all. Thank you again okay. for everything you do. Appreciate it. Oh, you thank you, too. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, he says, yeah, Mark says Polis should have you run the investigation, a true independent <laughs> investigator. <laughs> Although I got it, Mark. No, he can't. He was with Lou Smith. So, no. That's right. That's right. Thank <laughs> you. And then Peter Boyles run the other one. So, <laughs> all right, you guys. All right, everybody. Thank you for those great comments. Chuck is now where we've got Ash App is going to be joining us on Zoom here. Mo- oh, she's here. But what, one second before. Before Ash. she goes, Ash, Chuck has to do his two two minutes or two seconds on the um, Amber Heard, Johnny yeah, Depp I've trial. I've been watching Amber Heard He's trial obsessed, obsessively today. Uh, and Amber came on. Um, and I always wondered why the British judge said, you know, I, you know, I find everything that he beat her endlessly and everything else. Um, once she comes on, it's one of two things. One is a monster and the other is just a, a pathological liar. Um, and it could be, you know, you get to choose which one of the two. I mean, I, I at this point, I think she's a pathological liar, but it's clearly the, the judge over in England thought that he was a pathological liar, but it's fascinating and she's a very good actress and julie won half the bet uh because the first i said five, she was going to cry in the first 45 well, she minutes didn't cry but she teared up <laughs> enough uh, for it to be a semi cry and so i i've got the fourth hour where she totally breaks down so i still <laughs> win half the bet but right now she's ahead but we'll keep on we'll keep you both right now that we're happy to have with us ash app from ash in america one of the the, the newest columnists at the glendale cherry creek chronicle as well but ash in america is you've got all kinds of columns up and ash i wanted to bring you up because you've been doing a great job talking about i've been saying it is exposing and then expelling rhinos from the party and i think first i want to get your take on what happened um in what in ohio and indiana i mean you know the trump people trump endorsed people won and the rhinos are gnashing and wailing their teeth you know gnashing their teeth and wailing about that but your your take on sort of the primaries yesterday Sure. Um, and thanks for having me. Sure. Uh, so I, I think it's really interesting because there is a narrative about the, the, the primaries, particularly in Ohio with J.D. Vance and, and the Trump endorsed candidates there. The grassroots election integrity people are very unhappy with Trump's endorsements. Um, so this we, we, what I find really interesting about, um, and that's broadly, not just in Ohio, right? It's uh, there. There's a, a theory going on that Trump is endorsing rhino candidates for some sort of purpose. Um, you know, we go. This is like a third divide now. Right, right, right. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, um, so it's so it's interesting, but I I, I guess my take is. The most interesting conversations are happening on the right. The most um, really critical examinations of what's true are happening on the right. And so I think President Trump still has quite a lot of sway when it comes to uh, who people are going to vote for. There's still a lot of people that um, that trust his his recommendation. There was a poll that came out on Rasmussen yesterday about that, that President Trump, and I forget the number of Joe Bidens, but it was, you know, 36% of, of likely voters 
nationally said that they that a Trump endorsement of a candidate would be um, would would be important to them. That that's an um, important. Yeah, criteria. and Biden, it was like no one even cared. And Biden, much less. Yeah. Well, after my own side, I mean, I thought um, J.D. Vance was a great pick. Other people, Ted Cruz, Club for Growth, neither of which I give a great high mark to, um, had endorsed Mandel, and, and Mandel had a lot of problems. But I think I think Oz in Pennsylvania is a strange pick because he doesn't seem very conservative. Um, and there are other ones. And, and part of a way to kill your endorsement power is to yeah. back people that, that really don't match your profile. And that's what Sarah Palin started doing. I mean, she for a while had a you know huge sway. And then she started endorsing people that really didn't match up at all. And, and all that sway went away. Uh, but right now, there's nobody else you can really trust. I mean, it, Trump, you know, he also likes uh, people who are famous. He likes famous yeah. people. Uh, I think Oz got the famous person pick, but he's certainly better than, than anybody else out there, at least at the moment. So Mitch McConnell, and Mitch McConnell. Yeah, <laughs> Mitch McConnell does. It is great. Well, right. I, I think it does. I think it does carry sway. The, the J.D. Vance um, pick in particular, I think I would liken from what I've heard. Right. And I talk to grassroots people all over the country um, every day as part of my job. And so um, I would liken it to if Trump were to come into our primary and endorse Heidi Ganahl. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah. Heidi, I've met Heidi. I, I like her. I've met uh, I've met her husband. I've you know spent spent some time with her. I've, I have nothing poor to say about her, but the momentum and the grassroots swell right now is with Lopez or with Danielle, right? Depending on who you ask. And that's what, let me ask you about that because here again, I, and I guess just like I kind of have fun watching the Democrats get all excitable about Elon Musk and Twitter. It is kind of interesting watching the establishment of Republicans in Colorado get all freaked out about the um, assembly and what happened there. And if it, if that wasn't freaking them out enough, they are totally freaking out about Danielle Neuschwager, who did not make it on the uh, assembly, the GOP assembly for governor, um, saying she's going to run as a, 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 with a third party. And they're right. freaking out about that. And you had talk about your column, your April 28th column. I mean, you you propose, I'll be honest, I'm not so sure I totally agree with it, but I sure think it's intriguing. Sure. So, um, so my, my husband is a saint. April 28th was my 20th wedding anniversary. And I was writing that column. <laughs> <Last> <laughs> anniversary. Do you mind? Do you mind? I just, I have to get this. I'm on a roll. So, uh, so what we've heard a lot about Danielle is, oh my gosh, we're going to have a repeat of 2010. Yeah. Right. We're going to have a repeat of 2010 when Tom Tancredo came in and tanked the vote because he ran on the constitution party ticket. Against Dan and against Dan Mays, he tanked against Dan Mays. Mays, Correct. Um, What they hope that you don't think about is that Tancredo got thirty six percent of the vote and Dan Mays got eleven. Right. And so I'm I wasn't here in 2010. I was in the Tea Party in Florida at the time. Um, I moved here in 2012. Uh, I went to see you. Lived here with my husband. um, You know, prior to moving back to Florida, but I came back in 2012, and. it's, you know, so, so I don't have the emotional bias of that time period, right? right? I didn't live through it. They weren't my candidates. I didn't have a dog in the fight. I'm looking at from, you know, purely kind of a forensic point of view, what happened, right? right? And, and with that lens, I, what I see is that the Republican Party refused to align with their base, with the conservatives right. that actually make up the, the, the vote, the electorate. Right. right. Well, and what they did is, yeah, I mean, it was, I've re- re- tweeted about this too. It was their fault, right? The base clearly wanted Tam- Tom Tancredo. And they're like, oh, he's too extreme, too extreme. So they support what, um, McGinnis, Scott McGinnis, who turned out to be a horrible candidate, crashed and burned. So Dan Mays was what was left after that fight. I mean, I don't think anybody would have said, oh, yeah, we support Dan Mays, but then they were stuck with him. I mean, I agree with you. They created. The, the Republican establishment, by ignoring the base, created that situation. No, now, I, I guess I wouldn't agree because I was very have... much involved. And Tom is a, is a great friend of mine. Um, but if, you know, the old uh, song about know when to hold them and know when to fold them. Well, Tom has has uh, schizophrenia on that or, or, or whatever, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, bipolar or something. I mean, he's always running when he shouldn't. 
and and he's always he's always getting out um, when he should stay in. And in in 2010, um, it, it, he was not going to win as long as Dan Mays stayed in there, and the Republican establishment didn't particularly support. Uh, Dan no, Mays. but I mean, if they had let Tom Tancredo run in the first place. He didn't want to run. Well, he refused right. to run. He only Mays, ran because yeah, he didn't Dan think Mays. he could beat McGinnis. He only got it when 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 um, Mays got, got it. And Mays was such a disaster. Oh. Um, so <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't quite All right. simple. You're, yeah, that's, if, you're right. If Tom had run from the beginning, he would have won the nomination. But he got in too late. And just, you know, the election before that, he gets in. He, he gets the nomination and then folds. I mean. <laughs> Come on, but, Tommy. But to, to further, though, your column is you, you kind of say, look, the, the situation we have here. I, I mean, I think what you well, go ahead and, and just talk sure. about what you suggest. So so the, you know, kind of subtext and the part of this story that at the time contemporary uh, contemporaneous press really latched onto, <clears throat> excuse me, the um, the leftist press was that the Republican Party, because their candidate only got 11 percent of the vote, they were in. Uh, danger, right? Uh, you have to have at least 10% of the vote or you're a minority party. Um, in comparison, the Constitution Party, which was a minority party prior, and the, the trend of minority parties in this state is about 1.9%, right, okay. of, the, of the vote over since 2015. It's about 1.9%. So the minority party of the Constitution Party got the the 36%, they became a, a majority party in the state because of that, because it was a governor candidate. And that's how it's determined in the state of Colorado. And the Republican Party was in danger of becoming a minority party. I think it would have been great had that <laughs> happened, I not agree. because they would have stayed a minority party, but because maybe they would have learned their lesson, because clearly they have not learned their lesson as evidenced by the, you know, I go back to that radio show, which I found so I'm not even a Republican, right, that they weren't talking about me, but I found it so deeply offensive. When you look at the results, and, um, and I talk about this uh, in the, the piece that I wrote on the assembly, and also in the, the column that I wrote for uh, Glendale Cherry Creek, uh, you had 61% of Republican delegates vote for Tina Peters, right? right? A vote for Tina Peters is absolutely a vote for election integrity, because unless you believe in what she did, then you have to view her as a criminal if you're an honest broker, right? And I try to assume that people are honest brokers. That's, you know, not always smart, but (laughs) (laughs) Um, so a vote for Tina Peters is a vote for election integrity. And the Republican Party had an opportunity at that moment when they saw that 61 percent of their delegates voted for Tina Peters. They had an opportunity to shift. They had an opportunity to realign with the base and the Republican Party had an opportunity to avoid what happened in 2010. Instead, the Republican Party maintains in Colorado, maintains their attitude of, you know, we know best. And we're going to do it the way that we want to do it. It, What did they do? Did they come out and talk about the great uh, results for, you know, election? No. No. What did they do? Well, they 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 came out and they berated and dismissed and disavowed 61% of their delegates. Well, and they let Kyle Clark from Channel 9 bully him, right? I mean, look at Chuck was talking earlier, the 2000 Mules is, de- is debuting, right? That on the, the, on the, on D'Souza's um, documentary on election. I'm going to see it tonight. It's sold Yay. out. We were going to go and we can't get in. It's sold <laughs> out. A friend right? of mine bought tickets right when they announced it, which so is the when, only reason because I so would be sold they, out there. Right. When they try to pretend like this is because they don't want to be, have mean tweets aimed at them, that this is some obscure fringe thing that no one believes in. I mean, I would just say to all of them, I would say to Christy Burton Brown, all those people, go watch it. You know, Peter Boyles, go watch it. Just watch it and then come back and talk to me, right? Because, but don't just tell me there's no basis. And I think you're right. It's like they they rather they just keep saying, no, la, 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 can't see or hear anything, you know, and yeah. and and it's not working. No, well, and we working. well, it's not working. We're not winning. It's, it's working totally. Wow. All they care about is controlling one of the two major parties. Uh, in this case, the Republican Party. The fact the Republican Party has you know five uh, state senators left and ten House members left, they could care less because they can always make a deal. They can always get money from the government by going to polls and say, "Let's do a bipartisan deal," uh, sort of like the leap thing. I mean, that was a, that, they all were going to make a fortune out of it. 
Right. So the mere fact that they're destroying the Republican Party, the other one, if they if they back Tina Peters and Ron Hanks and the other people, they said we have a unity message. <laughs> um, they would lose it to the to the grassroots because the grassroots are much more numerous than the than the establishment. So it's not illogical. Involved. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's, it's yeah. not illogic. It's just unadulterated greed. Well, and I think. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, we don't even have to look at the um, the assembly or the the way that they're managing their party. Just look at where they put their priorities. So you have uh, Colorado grassroots around election integrity is one of the most on fire populations in the nation. We have made such waves through the legislature, the triple communist majority legislature, where we've had Matt Crane have to come out and address substance of reports because our pressure campaign is so effective, right? Election integrity is 100% important to the base of the Republican Party. Over the past couple of weeks, we've seen Christy Burton Brown and establishment Republicans go all out in social media, in messaging everywhere about the fentanyl bill. Right. Right. Have we heard them talk about SB 22153, which is on the House floor right um, now? A little bit. A, a little, a little bit, bit, but you're right. But not, but they don't talk about why it matters. They just talk I checked, about. Before we came on, I checked Christy Burton Brown, specifically her Twitter, because I follow her and I saw all of her fentanyl posts, right? There were loads of them. She tweeted more about that than she has about anything. Not a single post. About twenty-two. Well, I think that I've, I've, I've got I've got. I, I'll give her this. Yeah, I've gotten an email. One, I'll say one. But but you're right though. What what she doesn't do is it's just kind of vague. I think what they're trying to do is split the baby. Right? They get that. Oh, okay. There there do seem to be a lot of people here who care about this. So we're going to talk about it. But then we're still going to talk about all those election deniers. Right? I mean, they're trying to right, have it right. both ways. So forget Christie's tweets then, right? We have it. I'm, I'm monitoring the House floor right now. It hasn't come up yet, but they are supposed to have 22-153 hit the floor for the third reading today. Um, I have spoken to a few of my sources in the legislature who are going to do everything that they can to delay it, but there is no political will on behalf of the um, leadership in the House no. to, to address it at all. No. To do anything, to no, filibuster, to do any, to 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 do anything. I mean, this is a missed do. opportunity to realign with the people of their base, and they are the ones who are repeating 2010. And I think I I read somewhere that some people were planning, some Republicans were planning to try to do a lengthy filibuster. But remember all the publicity and everything they did on the abortion bill, right? Mm-hmm. And they, they the longest ever, you know. I mean, you're right. There is no, you know, come help us, support us on this bill. Not nothing like that, right? Yeah. And uh, you know, I think, and I think in your column, it would, it was this interesting. Well, what if Danielle Neuschweger ran in the Constitution Party and got another 36%? And I mean, you know, it'd be, it raises some interesting possibilities. And well, the other part about it is, you know, the Constitutional Party got promoted to major party status and they hated it. They, they complained immediately it. about it. Yeah, right. Yeah, but yeah, what yeah. if, but what if, right? What right. if they were? Well, that'd be great because, because they wouldn't have an open primary anymore. We could right. go back to an agenda primary. In fact, that should be required to have unless you voted otherwise. Going back to minority status would be the greatest thing the Republican <laughs> Party could do. Honestly, it would. It'd be tremendous because then all of a sudden you'd have a and then whoever the assembly picked out would have a huge support throughout the state. It may not win. It may win, depending if they can do some some ballot harvesting themselves. But the Republican Party turning into a minority party would be the best thing that could possibly happen. So if if Danielle went, and you know, Danielle's a, a not Danielle, uh, Heidi is a nice person, but but she's everything establishment, everything, yeah, everything. Well, it's just not going to. I mean, frankly, I I kind of think it's it's a very difficult road for any Republican gubernatorial candidate at this point. But again, you raise an interesting possibility. It all goes back to I think what you've said and what we've said, and and what all of our people here on chat and our listeners, excuse me, say is they're not listening to us, and somehow or another, then then when we kind of speak up our mind, and sixty one percent of us vote for tina peters they freak out and and say well we don't like you anymore you you know we're not going to give well, you what do you see the emails come out of pam anderson wins the primary which is the heavy favorite 
They'll go unify, unify oh behind God. our wonderful <laughs> candidate. We all are kept together, candidate. you know, and, and Dick Wilder, we have coming. to unify. It's coming. That message is definitely coming. And I'll tell you, I see that someone in the chat said, you know, it's the economy, stupid. It's not election integrity. I, th- I, I, I appreciate it. I understand the long history that that mentality and ideology has with elections. That's that is fundamentally, I believe, untrue in 2022. I think that the the stolen election of 2020 fundamentally changed the electorate. Uh, The Republican Party does not carry the the value that it used to, certainly in the state of Colorado, but in the nation in in general. Well, if the economy matters, then then Polis will be out, but he's not out. He's not going to be out. Because starting in 2013, they've rigged the election. We didn't have to, by 2018, uh, they had already established their, their ballot harvesting machine to make sure we can't win. And the and idea that people are going to, we're going to win now, um, you know, if, if anything becomes threatened, if Polis becomes threatened in a poll, he'll, build, he'll pull out another 30 million and ballot harvest his way to victory. And the Republicans... It's just keep pretending that that doesn't well, there's happen. There's an article in Gateway Pundit how the Republican Party in, in Alaska gave up a red state in order to have rank voting and jungle primaries and everything else. Combination of moderate Republicans and Democrats. Yep. Well, that's what they've done here, but over a longer period of time. The moderate Republicans, the Dick Wadhams, the, the Bill Owens, they've all trashed us so they can continue to run the Republican Party. And the weaker it gets, they could care less. And that's why to the voters, to the electorate, to the people of Colorado, in particular, the conservatives of Colorado and people who feel like the Republican Party has left them. That's why I think this this game is different now. If you're going to keep voting, right, you, the, the Republican Party is running the opposite direction of its base. Yes. Um, and you just laid out since 2013, we've seen this, um, them continue, right? To, it's this trying to be more like Democrats to grab the middle, right? right. And, and that hasn't worked for the Republican Party because since 2015, they've been hemorrhaging members. In the column you mentioned, I have the voting data over time um, as a, as a chart in that, in that article. And uh, they've been hemorrhaging members since 2015. The more they go to the middle, the, the fewer people want to be a part of it. And at the same time, we see Democrats hemorrhaging members at the same rate. The, the theory among Republicans and Democrats is that unaffiliated voters vote like Democrats. And so we have to become more like Democrats to grab the middle in Colorado. That's not true. I believe well, well, I firmly believe that both, both parties have abandoned the American people and the American people are in the, the middle. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the, what's happened is, you know, if, if you get illegal votes, if you get votes from Alzheimer's patients and old old age homes, they don't care if you're middle, not middle. They, they're going to vote whoever the ballot harvesters say. Well, and here real in. quick to, to Leo, and then we got to go. Leo is saying, Ash, tell me how you're going to get to election integrity. And Leo, I'll answer that. Number one, you need to clean out the voter rolls. Number two, you need to have ballot harvesting rules that are in, in place and enforced. Um, you have and, to and, get rid of ballot harvesting. What, what I mean, where you can only have one. That's what I mean. And oh. yeah, so that's a place to start. We have, we'll talk about this more. God, guys, these columns are great here, mm-hmm. but we got to run. So I have yeah. to thank you, Ash Thanks, in America. Ash. Great to see you. Ash in America, the Glendale Cherry Creek Chronicle 2. Um, we'll see you next time. Thank you for your time. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. Um, all right. Oh, God. So we'll, we'll address some of the comments later because this is a big topic. Yeah, These guys are, so how are we going to fix it? Um, hey, thank you to John St. Augustine. Thank you to Ash, um, App Ash in America, to Thomas, all you great guys on Zoom. Maybe you can get links to um, the show on any podcast format you want. Rumble at chuckandjulie.com. And I'll go back to the uh, Jeff <laughs> Chuck is now going to go back. Although it's over. It's probably over well, now. Got seven more minutes. <laughs> you guys, we'll see you all on Party Friday. We'll see you then.